Bring Back V10s is, well, back. And for this special episode, we've dropped two cylinders to look back on F1's V8 era from 2006 to 2013. Over our first two series, we've received plenty of requests to talk about the era that followed our beloved V10s. So as a festive treat this December, we bow to your wishes. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to take your questions on an era when the engines didn't sound quite as good as before, but there was plenty of drama on and off track, are two men who were in the thick of it covering F1 at the time, Mark Hughes and Ed Straw. Now, Mark, I can't imagine you missed many races between 2006 and 2013. Do you think this was an interesting and eventful period in F1's history? Yeah, um, and I didn't miss any races, actually. This this year is the first that I've missed around since uh, 2000. Um, but yeah, the, I think the V8 era was a, a fascinating one. It was uh, particularly interesting in the, for me in the first year of it, despite the loss of 20% capacity in a couple of cylinders, these cars were almost as fast straight away as the V10s around a lap. Um, they were much faster on corner entry and braking. And um, we, we entered the era still with the tyre war raging, but about to be, come to an end. And we saw the end of the Schumacher era and what looked like the beginning of the Alonso one, only for that to be supplanted by Hamilton and subsequently Vettel. We saw the Ferrari-McLaren duopoly that had uh, prevailed for a while, overpowered and a new hierarchy established. We saw... Jensen Button's career finally coming good, which it, it looked for a long time like it wasn't going to, really. We saw double diffusers, exhaust blowing, three very different eras in the tyre war, with the tyre war, then the Bridgestones and the Pirellis, with different styles of racing associated with each. Yeah, it was a very varied time. Quite fascinating, I think. What do you reckon, Ed? Were our listeners right to push for us to switch eras, even if it's only for a one-off? Well, well I do have tremendous enthusiasm for the usual bring back V10s era. I'm all for this and I'm looking forward to more one-offs in the in the future. So I'm thinking bring back 1.5 litre turbos, bring back match of V12s or maybe even bring back ridiculous 20-something litre aero engines if we want to go back to, to the early days. So yeah, I, th- I think it's great. And as Mark's already told the whole story of the V8 era in his, uh, in his initial answer, I presume we've pretty much told the story now. Yeah, that's the end of the podcast. Mark summed it up perfectly. So, uh, All right. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks for coming, everyone, and we'll see you in a few weeks for Series 3. Um, <laughs> it won't be long before we are back on the V10 trail, like Fernando Alonso disturbing everyone's debriefs and interviews over the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix weekend out in his 2005 Renault. Series 3 will begin on January the 7th, and we might even let slip what our first topic is at the end of this episode. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the show so far, and for those of you who get in touch and ask us questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. As you can imagine, that feed lit up thanks to Alonso's exploits in his old Renault. And I did notice a fair few familiar names who I'm sure were deliberately using that hashtag. So thanks for that and rest assured we did notice. Feel free to leave us a five-star podcast review if you enjoy the show. And it's also been great to see that since Series 2 finished, how many of you have gone back and listened to our earlier episodes in the feed to get your fix. But for now, let's get on with the V8 era and look at it in some more depth. For this episode, we asked readers of our website, therace.com, to submit questions. And as usual, we had more than we'll be able to get through today, but we will do our best. It's no surprise that a few subjects cropped up more than once. So we'll start with one of those because it's an absolute belter. Now, Mark, Kieran Kennedy name-checked you when asking us to talk about the McLaren spy scandal of 2007. JD said we have to talk about the Hungarian Grand Prix controversy that year between Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso, and JV Ramos also asked about that weekend. 
He's interested to hear your perspective as he followed the story through the Spanish media at the time. So he would like to know more about the context of what went on and why Ron Dennis appeared to be so rude to Alonso's physio after the qualifying session. So we'll focus on the Hungary incident in qualifying where Alonso delayed his exit from the pits to prevent Hamilton getting another lap in. Because, Mark, this all took place already against the backdrop of what people call Spygate, didn't it? Yes, and not only Spygate, but also the incredible internal tension at McLaren resulting from Ron Dennis having partnered the rookie Hamilton with his newly signed double champion Alonso. And Alonso's resultant paranoia and his feeling that Dennis didn't give him what he'd been promised, which was a number one status to go unencumbered for the title. And when Spygate then unfolded later in the year, Alonso was already at war with Dennis. Um, so that that was the extremely combustible environment under which Hamilton threw not just a match, but a grenade in the early part of Q3 in Hungary by going against the team plan of running as the second car in the fuel burn-off phase. Um, with the two halves of the garage were essentially competing against each other for the world title, Hamilton and his engineer tricked themselves in advantage by in qualifying by being lighter. So Alonso retaliated with his infamous blocking of Hamilton in the pit lane, and then civil war broke out. Um, so uh, you know, Dennis was obviously furious, and he, he admonished them both um, separately. And this just angered Alonso even more. He, he wasn't prepared to be admonished. He, he reiterated that he shouldn't need to be even fighting Hamilton, that Dennis should call Hamilton off and honour what he <clears throat> felt were promises made when he'd signed. So um, if Dennis didn't, he, Alonso threatened to use information on his laptop relating to the espionage case, which was already up and running by then. And he had some Ferrari weight distribution and tyre pressure data supplied secondhand from Mike Coughlin, the McLaren designer. He subsequently withdrew that th threat to Dennis about half an hour later after he'd cooled down a bit, perhaps realised he'd gone too far, but Dennis by then had already contacted Max Mosley, the FIA president, to inform him of the new information about how far the Ferrari info had spread into the organisation. As to why Dennis was rude to Alonso's physio, there were stories about the physio having been counting down Alonso in the pit lane so as to get out in time for his own lap, but to block Hamilton's. I don't think it was that. He was just demanding that the physio, who was Alonso's confidant in the camp, and no one at McLaren was. It was he was very sort of isolated within there. He wanted the him to come down with him to the collecting area in order to calm Alonso down, while he Dennis planned to do the same with Hamilton. But it didn't happen that way. The drivers pretty much blanked each other, and Alonso then blanked Dennis too. Yeah, that was a great image. So what was going on in Park Ferme? There, there were great TV pictures and photos. Uh, where you, know, some, you can't always see atmosphere uh, in visuals, but you definitely could that day. Now, John Turner wants to hear more about the story of Williams's victory in the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix with Pastor Maldonado and the fire in the team's garage afterwards. So, Ed, Maldonado's subsequent career and Williams's fluctuating fortunes, even during this era, mean that this often goes down as a fluky win. Do you think that's fair? I think it probably depends on your definition of a fluke, doesn't it? Because you look at the elements. Maldonado was always a driver who had it in him to do something like this, but he needed one of these once-in-a-millennia star alignments for it to happen. And a big part of that astronomical feat was him being absolutely on it that weekend and not making mistakes, which was rare. But throughout his career, even before Formula 1, he was a driver capable 
of these magic performances. So that was one element of it. And the fact that Maldonado was in the zone and driving so well on a weekend when the opportunity presented itself, there's an element of luck in that. But it wasn't unearned, should we say, in that regard. Remember, too, the Williams was a very quick car that year. Had a lot of very strong qualifying positions. Maldonado put it third in a few other races. Top six qualifying performances here and there. Had a fine drive in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, for example. Only finished fifth, but lost his curves in that race, having qualified third. So Maldonado was was strong, but the overall Williams results weren't great because he was all, a bit all over the shop. And Bruno Senna and the other car, good driver, sadly couldn't really do it in qualifying, which always meant he was up against it. So you've got a strong car, one that definitely definitely deserve to be finishing far far higher in the in the constructors championship than the eighth place they got then you've got some of the fortuitous elements hamilton was on pole or he was until he got excluded for not being able to supply a fuel sample so that took hamilton out of the way so that is lucky certainly no question about that that put maldonado on pole but i remember before the race we were all thinking oh how will maldonado respond to this you know if he's out and he's, if he stays out in front he'll probably be fine but alonso obviously managed to get ahead and then Maldonado executes a good race to, to pass him. So there are a lot of things aligning. And as well, the fact that this was in the, the peak tyre lottery period and Williams really got on top of the tyres that weekend. They did spend a lot of time trying to get on top of them there, but there's still a little joke. I've heard a few times Williams personnel from the time joking about the Spain set of tyres. It, it wasn't that they were given a special dispensation or anything. People suggest it was some kind of deliberate they were allowed to win or something, but it wasn't. But it was a point where they just got it in the window and the car was good and everything came together. Maldonado drove drove beautifully. You don't beat Alonso in a straight fight, even if you've probably got a slightly better car overall as that Williams was, certainly at that stage of the season, without driving well. So a fluke in terms of the chances of all those things coming together at the right moment for a driver like Maldonado to win, yeah, there's some fortune in that, but it also didn't come from nowhere. There was always the possibility this could happen. And what an amazing day it was. And then, of course, they blew up the garage at the end of it with the um, with the arrow while they were uh, taking the fuel out of Bruno Senna's car. He'd, of course, retired after being hit by Schumacher. And then they yeah blew the <laughs> blew the fuel. That was a very dicey moment. I was in the Williams motorhome at the time, actually, seeing this on the screens. And initially, you're like, oh, there's been a fire. And then you realise how serious it was. I was just getting to the point where I was thinking, are we going to lose the whole pit building? when they managed to get it under control, thanks to the the speedy reaction. So, very memorable weekend. But I think you have to factor in how much Williams really underachieved that year as well, because that was a really, really very decent car they had there, and, and probably they could have won more. So that's more the question, not that it was a completely out-of-whack result. It's why didn't they have more days where they were, if not necessarily winning, a little bit closer to that. But brilliant day. I'm really pleased it happened. And yeah, really, really memorable. Also, I think um, the very next race after that Monaco, where Maldonado was always um, really, really quick throughout his career, um, they were really um, pretty much hot favourites, um, certainly from within inside the paddock, because it was a very quick car around there. Maldonado was very, very quick around there, um, and he was very quick in the practices, but then got himself involved in this stupid wheel-banging incident with Sergio Perez, which... Um, got him penalised. So I think had that played out, you know, with, without that incident, um, we, we may have seen two on the trot and we wouldn't have that question anymore. That's textbook Maldonado, isn't it? That just illustrates the point. Yeah. You know, he, he could do great things in Monaco. That wasn't his, uh, that wasn't his worst moment in Monaco, sadly. That was uh, obviously the, the famous, not particularly pleasant incident with the Marshall there in his, his junior career. But yeah, 
Maldonado had that dash of magic about him and it constantly Williams were scratching their heads about how to get the best out of him and they never really did. Ansi Rulamo, who regularly gets in touch with the show, has a question about Mark Webber. He says, I've been wondering about the 2010 season and how close Webber was to becoming a world champion. Do you think Vettel's career trajectory would have been different if Webber had won the title in 2010 instead of him? Would he have still been Red Bull's clear team leader in the years that followed? To me, it seems like Vettel rose to another level in 2011, though it might just be his natural development as a driver. So, Mark, Webber came so close in 2010. Do you think if he'd got the job done, it would have changed anything about what happened at Red Bull over the years that followed? Uh, I actually don't. Um, I think uh, it would have been um, great to see Mark win a title. Um, but he, he he dropped it in Korea, really. He, he actually lost it mathematically at the final round, but he 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 really lost the impetus in Korea when he um when he when he crashed out chasing Seb um trying to get trying to be keep closer than he needed to be really um so it was a, a, a very similar era to the one that Alonso made in Fuji in 07 actually you know he's um he he was chasing Hamilton on that occasion in in, in the wet and and just lost it just just like Weber did in um Korea so yeah that's where he really lost it 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 was um yeah, that would it have made any difference? I, I don't think so. I think Seb, even if Mark had won that title, Seb was still the real focus of the team and very much who they saw as its future. He was eleven years younger than Mark, or well, still is. And, and besides the 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 blown diffuser cars that were coming, played to Seb's strengths far more than Mark's. Um, in that twenty ten season, they were having a little bit of difficulty at early season with with the diffuser. And when it wasn't working well, it was just like a conventional car. Mark Mark was very often faster, but as soon as they got a working, Seb Seb would always be quicker. Um, so it wasn't that. I don't think there was any feeling that um, Mark could become the the focus of the team through sheer performance. It, 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 there were, it, it wasn't. It wasn't ever of that order. It was just who was ahead in the points table for that particular year. The, the the impetus within the team was always mainly around Vettel, and that came from the Austrian side of the operation rather than the, the Milton Keynes side, who just ran it as a race team. Um, and I think um, really, in some ways, that, that dynamic brought out the best in Mark, actually, because it, it made him feel that there was an injustice and he needed, to, he needed to prove them wrong. And that's when we saw some of his best performances, I think. That's just reminded me that we didn't actually get a question about Multi-21, which I thought would be the first one on the list. But let's move on, because Rob Lloyd has a question about the controversial finish to the 2008 Belgian Grand Prix, where Lewis Hamilton lost the win because of the way he cut the track at the bus stop when battling Kimi Raikkonen, dropped behind him and then instantly repassed him. This was a brilliant battle for the win with rain starting to fall and Raikkonen famously crashed out, meaning that Hamilton's post-race penalty handed victory to Felipe Massa instead. But Ed, Rob's question is, was there a subconscious bias towards Ferrari here and would the same punishments be applied under today's rules? Well, subconscious bias is very, very difficult to detect and to prove. So <laughs> who knows? Maybe. It was a very different time in Formula One. There were more political forces at play, shall we say. And this was still 
not long after the whole the whole Spygate thing. So, yeah, who, who knows on that? But the interesting thing was, the question there is, would the same punishment be applied under under today's rules? And I think it could be because if you watch what happened, Hamilton had cut the chicane coming onto the start finish straight, and doing so getting ahead of, of Raikkonen. And he realised he did that. He lifted off. Then he got back on the throttle and passed Raikkonen into the source. Now, if you if you look at the footage. Certainly, he was closer to Raikkonen than he than he would have been had he gone probably conventionally through the chicane and therefore able to make the pass. Really, he should have waited because there's no doubt he'd have got ahead. wasn't much time to go, but I'm sure he would have done. So, if you're presented with those bare facts, did he gain an advantage and did he get all back? Probably not quite. I remember writing at the time that it was one of those ones where common sense really should have applied, and you'd rather it was shrugged off. But you always have the problem with the stewards that once it kind of becomes a thing for them to investigate. They have to apply the rules to it. The same thing happened with Vettel's penalty in Canada in 2019 when, yeah, he was done for rejoining the track unsafely after grass-tracking at the chicane. And I think the, the stewards would have quite liked just to sort of let him get away with it and say, not quite right, but, you know, it's racing. Let's, let's let it slide. But they couldn't. And I think the same thing happened at Spa. There were political forces at play, so maybe that, that played a part. But when you start looking at the letter of the law, which is why I'm, I'm not necessarily a big supporter of there being the letter of the law when it comes to these on-track incidents. Sometimes you need to allow a bit more room for nuance and interpretation. It was a legitimate penalty, if a rather unfortunate one, because it spoiled a fantastic race. And it, they were they spent ages before they decided about that penalty. I remember being down in the McLaren motorhome when they finally gave the verdict. So um there were some things going on. They certainly knew what was at stake, should we say, when it came to issuing that penalty. It wasn't a, a standard one. Subconscious, conscious, who knows. But the bare facts of the case, I don't think it was completely out of line that, that the penalty was was applied, even though I think a lot of people would have preferred it not to have been. And, and in terms of um, any bias, subject or otherwise, under the, the regime of that time... I would have said it's more likely if the, if there was a, such a bias, the bias would have been against McLaren rather than favouring Ferrari. Effectively, it's the same thing, but it would have orig- if there was a bias there, it would have originated definitely from uh, let's punish McLaren rather than let's help Ferrari. That's a very valid point, actually. Yeah, subtle difference, but significant. Bizarrely, I finally heard about that decision that night when I was driving home, and uh, Nicole Scherzinger was uh, interviewed on the radio. And she was congratulated for uh, Lewis winning the race. And she went, oh, no, he's just texted me or something saying that they've taken it away. And I thought, oh, that's some big news coming across in a Nicole interview. Probably the only time that she was around F1. This next question is a good one for you, Mark, as I know you're a big fan of a tyre war in F1. Iceman11 asks, would we have observed a different championship winning order if Michelin had stayed for 2007? It's a a great question, Iceman. Um, It's fascinating to ponder what the effect on the competitive order would have been if we just, let's assume that Ferrari had stayed with Bridgestone and McLaren had stayed with Michelin. Um, Because I think as it was with um, everyone going onto the Bridgestones, I think Ferrari would would logically have had an advantage from that. Um, they must have done. They, they'd been on those tyres for years. They were the old-style Bridgestones, not the tyre war Bridgestones, but they're the ones that had been used um, 2005 and, and earlier. Um, so Ferrari will have had a, a, a data advantage on that, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so 
McLaren may have, may have, depending on, you know, what sort of tyres Michelin and Bridgestone came up with in this um, supposed uh, scenario. But if we if we say they were at the same level relative to each other as they had been in 06, you would say that maybe the McLaren would have looked better against the Ferrari than it did. Um, and it was already quite an evenly matched car. I would say that if you had to characterise the performance of those two cars that season, the Ferrari was a bit quicker um, on aerodynamic tracks the ones that demanded a lot of downforce particularly at high speed but the mclaren was much better at switching its tires on and, and better on slow tracks so over the season over global season quite evenly matched the mclaren was easier to operate and i would contend it had a better uh, driver lineup but the ferrari was ultimately uh, probably a bit faster but if they'd been on this uh, trajectory of the tire war maybe it wouldn't look like that at all maybe maybe mclaren would have been more decisively the faster car um but would that have had an effect on the championship that's that's a different question because i'd say that um the order of the championship in 2007 ultimately wasn't decided by the respective performances of of the two cars it was it was influenced by the impact of max mosley getting involved in the espionage case and also by the internal tensions we talked about earlier at McLaren, where the Dennis had let loose by combining Hamilton and Alonso in the same place. I think it was those things combined which lost McLaren that championship rather than the respective pace of the cars. But it would have been fascinating to see. Let's talk BMW next. And this question comes from Matthew McCarthy. And it looks at the decision they took to switch focus from their 2008 car to the new rules for 2009, which, let's face it, BMW didn't do a great job of in the end. So, Ed, Matthew asks, could BMW Sauber have put together a realistic title run with Kubica in 2008 had it not switched development to the 2009 car so early? Given the inconsistency of Ferrari and McLaren across the season, could that potential extra performance have made the difference given Kubica ended up 23 points short? Well, if you ask Robert Kubica that today, he's still irritated about it. He'll give you a very clear answer. So... He thinks they could have done. They certainly had the driver. You can make a really strong case that Kubica was the best performing driver of the season. I had him as my number one, and I think, Mark, you had him as your number one in your top ten that I year. I did indeed, yeah. He was yeah. really, really outstanding that year. In normal circumstances, you would say, no, that the car was never going to be quite good enough. But there were so many drop points that year, particularly as the season went on, and he wasn't that far off, even under the, the old point system in the end. So if they'd really pressed on with development he'd have been closer and therefore there would have been a, a realistic realistic chance how much extra performance there would have been there I don't know but remember after the French Grand Prix Kubica was only two points off the championship lead and that was you know a reasonable way into the season so it, it was possible of course the reason they didn't was they wanted to focus on 2009 the new rules this didn't go very well for, for BMW Sauber they also shot themselves in the foot by standing in the way of any deferral of Kurs because they were very keen on it and of course their Kurs wasn't great so that was a mistake and in 2009, amid the, the global financial situation, BMW pulled out. So in, in hindsight, it was a terrible decision because it made far more sense to pile on with 2008. So the question is, how much extra performance would there have been and could it have, could it have swung the 23 points? Very, it's, it's possible. Kibitzer would have hung in there. Then he'd have changed the dynamic of it. He'd have always been the one who was who was a threat. And if you remember, the BMW Sauber later in the season, for example, he led the first stint at Fuji, but couldn't couldn't beat Alonso in that race in the Renault. So that shows how much the the BMW Sauber had, had dropped off. 
it would have been tough to win, even if they ploughed on with it. And it would have cost them going into 2009 because Ferrari and McLaren both suffered partly because of how ferocious that war was. But he'd have hung in there and had a chance. And that could have changed history. You you, you never, never know. And if he'd gone into that uh, that Brazil finale with, uh, with still in the hunt, you never know what might have happened. Okay, Massa dominated the race, but having another element in that championship fight would have certainly changed things. And a driver like Kubica, I think if you give him half a sniff of a championship, he's the kind of guy who doesn't necessarily grab it from that position, but he will hang on to that chance for as long as he can. I'd have loved to have seen him had a go. It would have it would have answered the question and at least given him half a chance of a championship that he never had the opportunity to fight for. Yeah, not the most dynamic of thinking from BMW, was it? We've discussed in the past, uh, they were the same with Williams. It was kind of achieve a goal one year, move on to the next goal. So a race was won in Canada. That was the job done for 2008 in their eyes. But let's move on to another of our topics that we received multiple questions about. And that's Michael Schumacher's decision to stop at the end of 2006 and what might have happened if he'd stuck around. So Mark, Gav and Phil both ask if Schumacher would have won more titles if he'd stayed on beyond 2006. Uh, Yes, probably. I I don't think um, it would have been like the dominance like we saw up to 2004. Um, Ross Braun had had left. Uh, Jean Todd was on his way out. Luca de Montezemolo was um, only offering Michael a place there on terms of you know joint status with whoever was alongside. So it wouldn't have been quite the tight organisation that it had been. So and I think that would have reduced his competitiveness a, a little bit. Um, but it, it's still Michael Schumacher, and it was, it was still the, the Ferrari was still a force at that time, just from the momentum of of that era. Um, but I think the fact that uh, Raikkonen and Massa were there or, or, or thereabouts in a, the title fight in 07. Obviously, he won at no, Kimi won at 07 and Massa only just lost out in 08. I think that tells me that Michael would have won those titles. Um, he was on a higher level than either of those two. He was a, a in the year before, in 2006, he was a massive half a second faster fuel corrected than Massa. And Massa didn't suddenly find half a second in his third or fourth season of F1. And there was very little difference in overall performance between Massa and Raikkonen during their time together. But I think, yeah, Michael would have prevailed, but he would have been pushed mighty hard by Hamilton, Alonso in 07, and by Hamilton in 08. Then with um, nine titles, let's let's suppose he, he had won those two, nine titles, um, would he have retired or continued? And uh, either way, would he have been there in 2010? I suspect not. He, he came back because he'd not stopped on his own terms. He, he'd kind of been squeezed out. So I, I think that was still niggling at him. And I think that's why he came back. And But I think had he, you know, had he just won his ninth title in 2008, um, no, I, I suspect he might have stopped at that point. Given Lewis Hamilton a slightly bigger target to aim for, uh, at the moment as well. Now, it's no surprise we received a variety of questions about the new teams that joined the grid for 2010 and the process that got Lotus slash Caterham, Virgin slash Manor and HRT onto the grid. So, Ed, you love F1 backmarkers. Dave DPG would like to hear more about the process. And Dan Smith really knows how to get you ticking because he wants to know about USF1's failed plans to get onto the grid 
and the what could have been of Stefan GP's plans to run Toyota's abandoned 2010 car. Here begins a podcast mini-series by me, I think. But <laughs> I, I want to talk about Stefan first, because that's an interesting case. Obviously, this was uh, Zoran Stefanovic, who wanted to run a continuation Toyota team effectively. So he did a deal with Toyota to use their facility, to use their car, the, the TF110, that of course never raced uh, for the 2010 season. But it, he sort of decided to do it unilaterally, because he never actually had an entry. And the FIA weren't a huge fan of the way he operated and he sort of tried to force his way in. Now, initially, there wasn't a space because there were 26 cars entered. And of course, it was very, very easy to say, well, we've got 13 teams, we've got no space for you, do go away. But he sort of kept trying, kept trying. And of course, when USF1 finally pulled out, initially for the first four races, I think it was, but I think it was very clear to everyone they weren't going to get up and running. He then tried to get that slot and even went to the trouble of going through this facade of having sent a team to the Bahrain Grand Prix, the season opening one, which was apparently a few uh, a few crates of freight containing supposedly picnic tables and chairs and that kind of thing, basically just some ballast to, to simulate the impression of doing it. But he had that agreement with Toyota and they had obviously all the kit and they had a car design, so it's not impossible that it could have worked. But yeah, it just didn't happen. The FIA shut the door on him at every every opportunity. As far as I know, those packing crates are still sat somewhere in Bahrain in a, some storage facility or, or other. It'd be great to go and track them down one day. Who knows? But yeah. Then they, you. <laughs> oh, that'd be a great <laughs> mission. I might do that next time but I'm in Bahrain. But yeah, they in the end, it was clear they couldn't join in 2010, so they, they ceased working with, with Toyota. Of course, they did have Mike Coughlin involved at one stage. I'm told that even... Some years later, there was still a, a room at Toyota Motorsport in Cologne that was full of all the Stefanovic Grand Prix planning and work and everything that had just been shut and left, and they'd never quite gone back in to clear out. Who knows, maybe that's still there as well as a, a museum piece. But Stefanovic has continued to float around. He certainly he tried to get an entry in the future and wasn't given it because he couldn't show he had the, the resources to do it. And I think he, again, a few years after that, lodged another entry, but that wasn't uh, taken particularly seriously, and I think he withdrew it. And even a couple of years ago, I think he was talking about reviving this project. So he's nothing if not persistent, but has never quite managed to get a thing off the ground. But it would have been interesting. We've had Kazuki Nakajima in the car. And you're like this, Glenn, because who who else was linked to that car? Jacques Villeneuve. Oh, really? Yeah, he was linked to a seat. Jacques will drive anything at that stage. Villeneuve was uh, was in contention. I think uh, James Rossiter as well was talked about, who's uh, driving, never made it to race seat in Formula 1. Good driver. Uh, did a bit of testing, you know, he'd, have been, he'd have been quick as well. So interesting to see if that had got off the ground, but it was never really as close as it seemed. There, if you look back to 2010, February, March time, there were a huge number of stories about it, but yeah, they were never really, really there. And of course, as I said, they were tied to USF1. USF1's a great story I'd love to talk about, but I thought I'd hand over to friend of the show and someone even better qualified than me to talk about it, Karim Chandok, of course, who was uh, sort of in contention for a drive there and certainly went over to have a look. So here's what Karim has to say about it. I still remember, Ed, it was the uh, 9th of November 2009 um, when I got on a plane and went to Charlotte. So there's a few things that happened uh, around that time. One was Peter Windsor, who uh, was a good friend of mine and still is, in fact, <laughs> a good friend of mine, was obviously heavily involved with the project with Ken Anderson and because Peter was a mate, you know, I felt I at least owed him, um, you know, the respect to go and go have a look in person and, and judge with my own eyes because there, there were sort of rumors going back and forth. And obviously, 
you know, this was a time with all the new teams coming in. Um, but also we had the Indian Grand Prix coming up. So, you know, Bernie was helping me out to try and find a seat in F1. And um, so, you know, at the time he said, look, look, it could be quite useful if you go over there um, and just have a look and, and let me know as well. You know, firsthand, it'll be nice for someone I know and trust to to have a firsthand look at what things are like. So, I jumped on the plane, went there and spent uh, three days with Peter and Ken. And unfortunately, and as much as, as I said, Peter, you know, is a friend, um, you could tell quite early on that it didn't really seem to have legs that it was going to make it to Melbourne. Uh, well, in fact, it was Bahrain back then, 2010, but it just didn't look like it was going to happen. You know, bearing mind this was November, though, you know, they had... The CNC shop was busy and then there was some machinery there, but I didn't, you know, there was no chassis. Um, the drawing office wasn't exactly bustling full of people. Um, you know, Ken, I think I met his son as well, if I'm not mistaken, in the design office. I think he was going to be one of the designers. And, um, you know, they had some drawings that they'd come up with this design of a transverse gearbox. And uh, I'll never forget looking at coilover spring dampers as one of their things, um, which which took me aback a little bit because that isn't something you you see really on a modern Grand Prix car. Um, but you know they had some theories about how the the fact that that year refueling was going away, of course, if you remember. So you know that was going to be the first year with no refueling. The cars were going to start with 160 kilos. So. They had all of these theories of how they they wanted to generate um, some mechanical grip. So, yeah, there there were some few left field ideas. I mean, you know, I think the highlight of my trip was spending some time at the Windshear Wind Tunnel, which um, I believe is still owned by Gene Haas. But anyway, they were you know going to have some form of collaboration to to work in the wind tunnel, and they were going to split the operation between the U.S. and and Europe. Um, you know, and they had all of these sort of ambitious plans of how it was going to work. But I, I didn't see, you know, 100 people even, let alone the 200 that they would have needed. But I didn't see this this big recruitment drive. There were a few people. I remember meeting one engineer. I can't remember his name, but he'd moved over from Honda in, in Brackley. You know, he'd moved his family, kids, all of it, and bought a house in Charlotte to... To work out there, um, you know, so I felt a bit bad for those guys because they they had you know believed in this project and trusted the project and fully committed and turned their lives upside down. And but the reality is, when you had your eyes open, you could see that there wasn't really a chance that they were going to make it um, on the grid, unfortunately. And you know, as as the weeks passed on, um, you know, I kept in touch with them, but. I heart of hearts knew and felt that that really wasn't a project that was going to make it. And unfortunately, um, that's the way it transpired. Uh, I'm going to add a footnote on the Stefan GP um, situation as well, because I actually, I think it was one of the few people who met them. Um, again, Bernie said to me, call, called us up, my dad and I, and said, listen, this thing could be happening. Um, Colin Collis is involved. So my dad and I were in India. We jumped on literally that night's plane, flew to Cologne, um, drove across and spent some time um, with um, the Stefanovich family, father and son, uh, Zoran and um, and, and uh, his dad. And um, Colin was there and we had a look around the Toyota factory. And 
you know, it looked real. And in fact, if you think back, the 2009 Toyota was a very good car, obviously. So I think, yeah, it would have been interesting to see if they actually did get the entry, whether they would have had the money to carry it through. But certainly, you know, they had all the infrastructure of the massive Toyota factory at their disposal, as well as very good cars from 2009. So what could have been? Thanks to Karun for that insight, and I'm sure we'll hear from him again during Series 3. I haven't actually sent him the list of episodes yet, so he can pick which one or two he wants to appear on. But let's move from one end of the F1 grid to the other, and we'll cover off two questions on a similar subject in quick succession here. So Mark, Hope Marimi asks how Lewis Hamilton ended up deciding to switch to Mercedes for 2013 and what really played a role in him deciding to leave McLaren. Uh, all the things he spoke about at the time, um, Ross convincing him of the, the massive preparation that Mercedes has already made in the hybrid engine, how it was building up its resources in the factory, how McLaren was only going to be a customer team, and also the inevitable relationship of Ron Dennis and Hamilton. Hamilton felt he was being over-controlled by the man who'd given him his chance and that he couldn't ever be anything but the protégé in that team and that he wasn't really respected the way he should have been given his subsequent success. Um, then there was the final straw when Hamilton had found out that Dennis had visited Mercedes and told them all the reasons why Hamilton's volatility and personality would be a liability to a big brand like Mercedes and that it was a bad idea that they tried to sign him. And so Mercedes immediately told Hamilton what had just happened and that, that, that was in the lead up to the Singapore Grand Prix uh, where he made the decision so I'm, I'm sure that played a, a big part in it as well because coming into that weekend um, Martin Whitmarsh understood that uh, Hamilton had decided to stay and then had communicated it as much but all of a sudden he changed his mind um, so there was that and then there was the, the retirement from the race while leading and the visit but in the hotel by Nicky Lauda could probably push the thing across the line but yeah it was a whole series of things but I think the most important one was that Ross had really done a, a good job in convincing just how how much of an upgrade the Mercedes team was going to be from the, the Mercedes team that existed at that time. We have to remember as well that McLaren was a bit shaky in 2012. They had a very quick car, but operationally and reliability was was questionable. Singapore was just one case where he, Hamilton didn't get the result he probably felt deserved. It, I think it was a bit of a gearbox casing mould admin cleaned out that, that came loose and got meshed up in something and led to the retirement. So I think everybody looks back as if it was a completely ridiculous decision, but there, there was some writing on the wall and some reason why you might not have total faith in McLaren as well. So all these things kind of aggregated together and made it, I thought at the time, and I think I wrote this at the time, it, it's a decision that makes a lot of sense, not without risk, but yeah, Mercedes had a great plan, didn't they? And what's followed after has shown how good it was. Yeah, I don't think anyone could have known quite how good that plan was going to be. And it certainly wasn't a sure thing, but there was logic to it. But let's follow up on what happened to McLaren after Lewis left. And Mark Tuna Overlord asks, what was at the root of McLaren getting it so wrong in 2013? As we've mentioned there, arguably the fastest car in the field for 2012. And then such a poor 2013 where there was even talk of them going back to the 2012 car. So what did they get wrong? It was the final year of that formula and everyone else was pretty much keeping their existing concepts and focusing on 2014 rather than 2013. And McLaren believed that this op offered a, an opportunity to be aggressive in 13 with an all new concept based around pull rod front suspension that had push rod up to this time. 
and totally reconfiguring the aerodynamics around a pull rod front suspension. And in isolation, all the bits of the package looked really good in, in, in simulation, but they just didn't join up and the simulation was wrong. And then, then the car was way too critical at low ride heights and had to be run in a very tame ride height to, to prevent stalling um, and very tame rake. And also the suspension had to be held in a very narrow aero platform, making the ride horrible so it was slow over the curbs. And yes, there was talk of returning at the 2012 car. Ron Dennis was pushing for that, but he was no longer running the team. He was in a higher overall role. And Martin Whitmarsh went with the engineers. He, he believed it was important for his engineers to, to be given the chance to to make it come good, make their design come good. And uh, they, they'd assured him that they could, and it uh, turned out that they couldn't. So, um, yeah, that was just pretty much a, a season thrown away for no good reason. Do either of you think that they should have dusted off the 2012 car and just got that back out, got the known quantity back on the track? In hindsight, yeah, absolutely they should have done um, <laughs> early in the season. But uh, yeah, I can completely understand the reasoning why um, Martin would have preferred to to back his men. One of the most unfortunate moments of this era was, of course, Felipe Massa's accident in qualifying for the 2009 Hungarian Grand Prix. And it's no surprise that we received a few questions about the effect that had on Massa's career when he returned the following season. So Darian asks, could Massa have won a race in 2009 if he'd stuck around, given Kimi Raikkonen took a win for Ferrari at Spa? And would Massa have had more confidence and been more on par with Fernando Alonso from 2010 without the accident? And Gustavo Machado also asks if Massa could have put up more of a fight against Alonso without the effects of the accident. So Ed, what do you think? Was Massa the same driver when he came back for the start of 2010? It's a very interesting question. Incidentally, I don't think he'd have won a race in 2009 because it was only Raikkonen's brilliance at Spa that allowed him to nick a win there. Just wanted to tick that one off. At the time, I very strongly felt he wasn't the same driver. I've had a number of conversations with Massa about this. He's, I've got a lot of time for Felipe Massa, really, really good guy. Obviously, he's adamant that there was never any, any loss difficult to, to measure. Having said that, when you start thinking about just how strong a driver Alonso is, it could well have been a big part of it. It was just that suddenly he had a driver of a, of a higher level. Obviously, Raikkonen wasn't quite the force in his Ferrari years that he was in it at his McLaren peak, certainly, and what's happened after has, has proved that. So I'm sure there was a little bit of... Uh, it was held back a little bit in 2010, because if you look at the the performance gap between the two. Massa was actually his weakest in 2010 in outright pace compared to Alonso. The the kind of relative positions were bigger in 2012 because the Ferrari wasn't a great car, but actually the pace wasn't wasn't so horrendous uh, on average. So maybe in 2010 it was his most pronounced. But also Massa was a driver who, to make it work, he needed kind of a certain set of conditions. I think the way that the the way that the cars and the tyres worked at that sort of peak he had at Ferrari in 2007-2008 as well worked quite well for him when he seemed to just deal with that that kind of inherent understeer those Bridgestones had particularly in 08 and carry good speed through the corner he was never one you watched on board and thought he was particularly precise and seemed to miss apexes here and there but the minimum speed was kept up so it, it really worked but yeah Massa's not in Alonso's class so I think he lost a little bit it's very, very difficult to say how much, but those injuries he got were very serious. Let's not let's not be uh, beat about the bush on that because you know it was dam it was physical a bit of damage to the brain, which is never nice to have, is it? Uh, so 
he's clearly recovered well in, in reality and he operated enough on a high level. But even Massa at his absolute best in Formula One is going to lose out to Fernando Alonso at Ferrari, ultimately. That's that's a simple fact. So, yeah, not quite the same driver. However, I don't think he went from absolutely awesome to terrible. I think he went from sort of very, very, very good when the conditions were right to sort of very good, shall we say. And he couldn't live with uh, couldn't live with Alonso. The thing that I always thought was a crying shame, though, was not letting him win in Germany in 2010. I get the reason why Ferrari did it. But I think it was a year to the day since his accident. And the whole Fernando is faster than you. Such such cruelty to to deny him that deny him that uh, that victory. And uh, I'll always remember the press conference after that with uh, with Alonso being barraged with questions in the uh, Hockenheim press room. That was uh, that was very tense and uh, and enjoyable. But yeah, that's that's where I see Massa. Simply at the heart of it, he is not as good as Fernando Alonso, and there's no disgrace in that. Not many are. Yeah, I'd largely concur with that. Ed, um, I think it, it probably took about a year. Um, from from him coming back before he was operating at his previous level, but I think he, he got there or thereabouts eventually, um, and I think that's yeah, I think that was a fairly accurate reflection of of where he was at relative to Alonso. Let's stick with the two thousand and nine theme for a bit here, and initially with some Ferrari thrown in as well, Mark. Thibaut Mangleshots asks, how did McLaren and Ferrari get the 2009 rule changes so wrong? Well, they both missed the double diffuser, Roos, for one. Um, that was uh, Braun, Toyota and Williams all uh, spotted the, the interpretation that was possible under the revised regs. Um, that was one, one thing. But beyond that, McLaren completely missed that the most effective aero philosophy um, w- w- was going to be the outwash front wing and was unique in staying with an inwash front wing, uh, which made it hopelessly uncompetitive. That just wasn't the, the, the configuration that these would work with the, with these new regulations. And as soon as they switched to an outwash wing halfway through the year, it became an okay car. Not good, but okay. And Hamilton won in Hungary with it with a bit of help from um, Kurs. Um, but But... Before that, it had been awful. It was it was go- it was a going out in Q one sort of car. Uh, before uh, before that, uh, Ferrari uh, it shaped its gearbox low and wide to bring the weight distribution uh, the uh, the um, center of gravity height down, um, and that was based around the the, the single diffuser. Uh, but it formed a blockage when they went to the twin diffuser floor, and so it didn't allow them to maximize that interpretation when they subsequently did a, a twin diffuser floor they were still stuck with the 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 wide gearbox um so yeah that was the the the, the two sort of hard points that you couldn't really get around for for, for mclaren and um, ferrari they also just as a little counterpoint to the bmw thing developed all the way through to the end of 2008 so there was a lot of focus there if memory serves they still had a few bits and pieces as an upgrade for the last race of the season in brazil so that that perhaps fed into them not getting on top of the, the 2009 arrow rules as quickly as they should have done. I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that of my own. So uh, Glenn Freeman asks, uh, and this can go to both of you, do you think that 2009 shake-up has, is now held up as kind of the poster child for rule changes having a massive effect on the competitive order? And is that what F1 itself and fans are always hoping for every time we get a new set of rules coming in? Well, it, it, it offers that um, possibility. 
because but it, it doesn't guarantee it but it, it offers that possibility because if you radically re reshape the regulations there is always the chance that someone spots uh, a little loophole that is very very effective or one two one or two teams do it and two or three teams don't at the, of the top guys so you will then see a radical shakeup um and that's what it's exactly what we had then um but it doesn't guarantee it i, I think just just shaking it up um especially if if the rules are particularly prescriptive i think what tends to happen always is that the the well resourced teams just do more iterations and then and, and grind ahead through sheer you know weight of resource but if the if there is inadvertently built in a little loophole then then yeah obviously it can happen it's one of the more extreme ones 2009 it can happen when you change all the variables and the and the factors contributing to what makes people competitive but you know the double diffuser obviously distorted the whole thing as well and then the whole brawn story fed into it because of the way honda had operated etc so yeah it's it's a it's the thing that you hope for, and certainly if it's steady state, as it were, one season to the next, why would you expect anything different to happen? The same thing should happen. So it creates a condition for people to trip up. But as we saw, McLaren tripped up, but halfway through the season they were able to win races again. So you know it doesn't take long. The, the best teams or the best resource teams tend to come out on top fairly quickly neither of you have got my hopes up there for 2022 then but no conversation about the v8 era or 2009 actually would be complete without talking properly about one of the most famous stories in f1 history which is when braun gp rose from the ashes of honda to win the championship with jensen button we had a few questions about this as you would expect so ed christian candler asks how well do you think that team would have done if honda didn't pull out yeah, it's a, it's a good question because obviously the the engine's the thing everyone focuses on. They think, well, it would have been a Honda engine rather than a Mercedes engine and the Honda engine in that V8 era is a decent engine, but it wasn't as strong as the Mercedes. I think that's pretty well well established. So you could potentially have the same car that started the season strongest with a slightly weaker engine but still a decent one. But at the same time, if Honda was still there, that would have changed things as well because they'd have had a the engine that the car was designed around rather than hacking it about from december to fit the mercedes in and they'd have had a proper development budget they wouldn't have had to axe however many people they they were cutting through the year they wouldn't have been kind of scraping to get to the end of the season so it's uh it's an interesting question what might have happened with honda i think no doubt they'd have been winning races wouldn't they and you'd have to suggest perhaps it would have been possible to to have fought for the championship but it also most interesting would have changed the political landscape as well because again we come down to stewards decisions and political considerations double diffuser that rule interpretation about what constitutes a whole and what isn't because that's what it was about it wasn't so much about the architecture of the diffuser it was being able to actually get the air to it to make use of it that was critical might that have gone differently if it was gargantuan honda rather than plucky independent brawn i don't know it's hard to judge but yeah, certainly they had a they had a strong car, and it would have been a much much easier season. And also, that team probably wouldn't have then had the subsequent slump that it had. Obviously, we're getting into a very different branch of history here, because that Braun team was brought by Mercedes. But if it carries on as Honda, who knows? Maybe they could build on that and that year, and not have the the hangover that they had from the, the Braun period that made it harder for for Mercedes. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a really really interesting one. No no question there. They're winning races, 
that's certainly true and probably the benefits of, of having the Honda budget and everything would have meant they could have been a, a proper title contender so yeah I just wonder how the whole political thing would have would have panned out it's it's an interesting question the other interesting prospect of that if they'd stayed in and that, yeah I, I, I largely uh, agree with that analysis of Edge that the, the, the um the benefit of the Mercedes engine, I, I don't think, was as great as the benefit of, of having a, a full works development budget behind you. So I think, I, I, yeah, I think they would have succeeded regardless. But the, the other interesting thing about that uh, prospect is that had Honda stayed in, it wasn't going to be Rubens Barrichello in the second car; it was going to be Bruno Senna. So <laughs> Bruno would have climbed into the into the best car in F one as Jensen Button's teammate, and uh, might have had a very different career. He set a very good time in his test. I think it was at Barcelona, but uh, I remember being told at the time by a spy that he'd, that he'd cut the chicane on that lap, so it wasn't quite as impressive as it as it looked. But again, yeah, interesting. It would have another point of history changes. Who knows? Maybe Bruno Senna there is uh, now talked of as a as a Grand Prix winner. Just shows how these tiny little things have the think of the ripples of that whole Honda pullout. We're still feeling those ripples today with with Mercedes. It just shows at the time you it's a massive story, but you can never tell how seismic these things are. And Martin Whitmarsh bending over backwards to try and accommodate a Mercedes engine in Braun, in retrospect, may have been a, a little bit of a self-defeating move. Yeah, I think he and McLaren never quite recovered from that one. Fun question here from Jack Clark, who asks about Fernando Alonso apparently telling Renault's Alan Permain that he would have won the 2013 title for what was then known as Lotus. I think Permain shared this on uh, his Beyond the Grid F1 podcast interview recently with Tom Clarkson, so go and check that out. But Ed, Jack's question is, if this claim has any merit, was Alonso posturing or is it a valid point given Kimi's lack of performance against Fernando when they were at Ferrari in 2014? And were Kimi's fantastic two years of Lotus actually below the level of the car? Well, Alonso loves a bit of posturing, so I'm sure that's a, that's a little <laughs> bit of it. But when it's Fernando Alonso, he's, he's, he's got the means to back it up. So, yeah, it, it's easy to make these claims. And actually, there's all number of cars over this period where you'd say, if Fernando Alonso was in it, what would have happened? What would have happened if Alonso was in a 2012 Williams? That's an interesting question. Or 2014 Williams, say, a little bit later, once we're into the turbo hybrid era. If you look at 2012 and 13 as a whole, I think there's no doubt that Alonso would have had a stronger set of results and Raikkonen, who was the best place in the championship both times, would have done. 2012, if you look at it, there are a number of races, particularly while Raikkonen was feeling his way in, where you said, actually, yeah, the Lotus could be really strong in this race. It'll come on well, looks after its tyres well both years. That was very much in the DNA of the car, but Raikkonen didn't always make the best of it. So Fernando Alonso would probably win Bahrain 2012, for example, which Raikkonen couldn't quite win. And probably he'd have qualified better in Melbourne that year where Raikkonen had traffic. If Flando Alonso almost won the championship in the 2012 Ferrari, he's certainly doing better in the 2012 Lotus, I think. But at the same time, it wasn't necessarily the absolute best car. 13 as well, it was also strong. They had the problem that Raikkonen was the, was the one who got the most results, but Grosjean was the faster one. The team's own analysis had that Grosjean was about three tenths faster something like that in terms of his raw pace and he started over the second half of 13 in particular to put together these really consistent strong performances but we know how good Alonso is could he have won the championship 2012 very very possible 2012 I'd stake more on than than 2013 because of how strong Red Bull was in 13 but 2012 I'm going to say yes 2013 
he'd have had a good sh- he'd have had a shot but i think red bull might have just had too much room with that package they had that year yeah i would concur i think um not only alonso could have won the title in that car but i think um robert kubica could have done as well he's another guy that we, that, that um if you just shuffled the cards differently would have been a world champion and um yeah at 13 i think red bull were too far too far clear but um 12 definitely it was on with a with a, a real top class driver yeah, Sakon Yamamoto would have wanted to know. I might have gone too yeah, far Yeah, you've just spoiled it now. You've burst the bubble. Well, that's just what we needed from this podcast was more championships that Fernando Alonso could have won. Uh, I'm sure he'll be delighted about that. But let's finish off with a question we often get asked about the V10 era as well. And it's one that I'm sure Mark and Ed will both like to have a crack at. We had a few variations of this, but the basic premise is who was the greatest lost talent of the V8 era? And was there anyone who was overrated as well? So, Mark, you can go first. <laughs> we've just uh, we've just been discussing it. Um, for me, it's Robert, Robert Kubica is the greatest lost talent. Um, he's a potential multiple world champion, and uh, yes, so he lost one opportunity with um, BMW's decision on the development program, and um, many thereafter with his with his, with his accident. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great shame that we didn't see that play out. Um, overrated? I don't I don't want to. Don't think we can really get into who is overrated. I, uh, you know, fans all have their favourites, and um, I, I think the, the the rest just it, it's just analysed as as it happens, and the, the results are are what they are for that driver in that car. So and I'm not. I don't really. There's no one for me stands out as having a higher reputation than they should have had they they got what success they got what do you think ed are you going to be you're going to be more forthright than that or do you think mark's called it right certainly on the overrated side you can't agree with him on both you can't you can't both say kubica and nobody well i'm 100 percent agreeing with robert kubica absolutely endorse everything mark said about him wonderful driver i always i, I can never forget watching him in the Renault at monaco in 2010 just look absolutely spectacular watching him trackside. Brilliant. He's stunning at Suzuka. You know, just just a fantastic driver. And it, it's such a shame we never saw that fully realised in a championship contending car. Just just a real, real shame. So, yeah, I'm endorsing that. I thought a little bit more about drivers who didn't get a shot in F1. So I don't think there are any kind of world champions, should we say. But I was thinking Gary Paffett sprung to mind. Great shout. Not, I don't think he's going to be world champion, but did lots of testing for McLaren, a good quick driver who could have had a Grand Prix career similar sort of driver Jamie Green another one that, that springs to mind he was a McLaren Allsport BRDC award winner I was at those evaluation tests he was very very impressive obviously he's had a long almost interminable DTM career he's had almost the most he's, he's had almost the most boring successful career you could possibly have and I mean that as a positive because he's done really well for himself but it's just it's all just DTM pretty much um, any more DTM drivers a, you want to name no, no, I, I thought about Vanina X as a contender, but I decided against it. I, I might just throw in Scott Dixon as a, a bit of a left-field one. He was never really properly on the, the track to F1, but we've seen how good he, good he was in IndyCar. Overrated, I'm going to be slightly controversial and go for somebody who perhaps I was a part of overrating because I did think he could be absolutely brilliant, and that's Nico Hülkenberg. Now, I, I really like and rate Nico Hülkenberg. He's a brilliant driver. Uh, I think it's a... I don't buy into this whole thing that he's never got a podium because he's not very good. It's just, you know, he's a really classy Grand Prix driver. But from his junior career and what he did in A1GP, first season we went, I really thought there was a driver there that could break through and be a world champion. I think over time we've seen there's a few limitations there. 
that means he couldn't have been, he could have been a Grand Prix winner. I've got no doubt of that. Some wonderful drives. Career 2013, just to throw one in there. Could have won into Lagos 2012, but obviously made a mistake in battle with Hamilton. Overrated and Hulkenberg, it's a little bit of a harsh thing to, to attach to him, but it more reflects the fact that I thought he could be a proper, proper, proper superstar, and he was merely a very good Grand Prix driver. No disgrace in that, but yeah, I'm going I'm to say ultimately history showed he, certainly by me, he was maybe a little bit overrated because there were just some weaknesses there that meant he couldn't quite get it together, which I know will surprise people given how positive I generally am about Nico Hulkenberg, and, and he is a, is a wonderful driver, just not quite as wonderful as maybe he could have been. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I probably played a part in that as well because I covered a lot of his junior career. He was touted as the next Schumacher for a while, um, partly because they had the same manager and even had the same logos on his cap. Um, but it is a shame that he's not in F1 at the moment. He's done a great job with his cameo appearances in 2020. Uh, one of our commenters suggested Heike Kovalainen as overrated. And uh, I remember... When Kovalainen, uh, I think he, he beat Michael Schumacher at the Race of Champions and everyone said, wow, look at this. But I think beating someone inside a stadium around a rally special stage is a bit different to uh, doing the business in Formula One regularly. And he was touted to, you know, he was the favourite for the first season of GP2 in 2005, but didn't quite get it together, lost out to Nico Rosberg and ultimately got his shot at McLaren, where I think we saw how his level compared to what we now know is a true great uh, as Lewis Hamilton. Uh, to keep the D DTM theme going, if there was someone who I wish had had a slightly fairer crack at F1, um, I would say Paul de Resta. Um, I think he deserved longer in on the grid, maybe deserved another chance of another team. I think Paul's done a great job in the media since he switched to that role, and I think he understands a lot more about all the things you have to do off track um, to get the most out of yourself as an F1 driver. And I suspect Paul is the sort of person now who, if he had his time again, would handle himself as an F1 driver differently. doesn't necessarily mean he'd be any quicker in the car, but I wonder if he could have helped himself uh, be dealt a better hand uh, away, well, away from the circuit and, and behind the scenes. But um, yeah, I think we'll leave it there for Bring Back V8s. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question and sorry if we didn't get to yours this time. But we do have a new series about to start with Bring Back V10s and make sure you get your questions in early for our series finale there where we can take your questions on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. And as usual, you can do that using the hashtag Bring Back V10s on Twitter. You can also submit a question by leaving us a five-star podcast review and a massive thank you to those who have done that already during our first two series. I do make sure we read them all so that none of the questions get missed. We'll be back to 10 cylinders when we return for Series 3 on Thursday, January the 7th, where we'll be kicking things off with a special guest joining us to discuss Jensen Button's breakout year in 2004. And yes, that does mean we will be taking an extensive look at his controversial attempt to leave BAR for Williams for the following season.